0: All right, hello, my friends. Hope you guys are well. Let's flip over to Luke. We're going to get to uh, 2 Corinthians. At least that's the plan. But we're going to start in Luke today. Just kind of looking at this week, and we'll make our application out of 2 Corinthians 3, where we left off uh, last week. So in Luke chapter 15, we'll start in verse 1. Hey, Mike, good to see you. We'll start in verse 1. It says here, Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law murmured, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. <clears throat> we'll stop there for a second. So, this is pretty standard, right? There's not a lot of new things that are happening with the Pharisees. Now, we know that the Pharisees, a little background, they started off uh, when the Greeks, uh, a couple hundred years prior to this, when uh, Greek culture was infiltrating Jewish culture. And so, they uh, basically, uh, uh, a lot of the, a good amount of the men of Israel got together and basically formed uh, this particular group. And it was to combat. Uh, their children buying into or or coming to Greek culture. So that's how the the Pharisees started, was was to say no to this new polytheistic, over-sexualized culture. So over time, that continued, and it grew into essentially what we have pictured for us in the New Testament, where uh, as Jesus quotes Isaiah to them and so forth, they had come to this place where they sought God and a rightness with God, righteousness with God, they sought that by their own works. And Jesus tells them that many, many times. And he makes the point, he says they're like whitewashed tombs. Uh, granted, this is generally speaking, we can't make a commentary on what every Pharisee was like, right? There were people from the Sanhedrin that supported Jesus, uh, you know, and, and, and went to Jesus and, and questioned him and so forth in, in, in genuineness. But anyway, so in this particular case, they were, he says they're like whitewashed tombs. They're real clean and shiny on the outside, but on the inside, they're full of dead men's bones, uh, which was insulting to them. And so we see here kind of one of their big beefs, and this comes up multiple times in the New Testament where Jesus is hanging out with tax collectors and sinners. Now, we know also that tax collectors are, uh, they were apostate Jews, so they were essentially the Roman model when they would take over a country, doesn't matter if it's Germania or wherever it is, when they would take a country over, they would take locals, and essentially they would offer them big dollars to extract taxes From their kinsmen, so they're traders to their nation uh, in the Roman government. That's how it worked. They would know the local population, they would know normal field yields, they would know those things, and essentially, what they were hired to do was to collect uh, taxes for Caesar. But then, anything above what they collected, anything they could extort out of the people, they got to keep. So many of these tax collectors were very well off, and they did it on the backs of the people they grew up with, quite literally. Uh, remember at this time, uh, Jerusalem is like 15,000 people. Nazareth, where Jesus is from, is about 450 people. So that kind of gives you an idea of, uh, when we think of big cities, when I think of Seattle or L.A. or something, well, it, it, they don't they didn't really have that. Rome was the biggest city and it was about a million people. So anyway, Jesus is, with these tax collectors and sinners, sinners typically, it, just, it literally just means people who sin which would include everyone, but uh, the Pharisees seem to use it as a label mostly for uh, prostitutes, uh, people that essentially um, are using crime as a benefit. And we could probably spend a lot of time about how people get there, uh, but that's not what we're going to talk about today. So Jesus is with these guys, and they make an interesting accusation because they say that not only is he with them, but he welcomes them. So the whole issue at hand here, the whole context that we're about to cover is that the the religious leaders of the day have a huge problem in the fact that Jesus not just talks to them or that he interacts with them, although that was probably problematic for them also, but the fact that he welcomes them. He wants them to come to him. He wants them to be with him. People that, I mean, could you imagine that? We, you know, we, Some of us might even consider the IRS traders, and they're not even, they're doing a job for the most part based on code that somebody else made for them to do a job with, right? Now imagine you're hanging out with people that are literally actively trying to rip you off, and that's, that's who these people are. So they say, this isn't right. You shouldn't be with those kind of people. So what we're about to cover is what Jesus' response to the, to the beef or the problem that they have, which is, you welcome sinners. Now there's three parables here. We're only going to read the last one, but in the first two, the first one is you have 100 sheep, 99 are chilling in a field, and one leaves. And it says that the shepherd goes after that one sheep. And it says when that happens and that sheep is brought home, he carries that sheep back, and it says that all heaven rejoices. The the emphasis there is that it's a percentage, right? 99% is fine, but 1% is not fine. And so God is willing to go after the 1%, even when everybody else is doing okay. You also have the emphasis that all joy, that there's joy in all of heaven over a sinner that repents. And and we'll talk more about that later. The second illustration is a woman who has 10 coins, 10 silver, uh, uh, basically it's a drachma, it's, it's one day's wage. And so she has 10 days wages saved up, but she loses a silver coin. And then when she loses that coin, she sweeps and moves the furniture. She does all this stuff, and she finds the coin. She invites everybody over and says, come rejoice with me because I found that which was lost. And the emphasis there is more on how much she does to find the coin. So the percentage is less, it's only, or I should say is more. 10% is gone, but that she cleans and looks and does everything and then finds the coin. So, and then it says that all the angels rejoice in heaven. So the two parables basically show us that heaven rejoices, angels rejoice, That it's not about, that God can never have enough when it comes to people that are around him. And then the second parable illustrates that God is doing great things, great lengths, and laboring to to bring people to himself. Does that make sense? So the last parable is one that many of us may be familiar with, but it's significantly more detailed and really lays out kind of a societally, maybe not for our society, but, uh, but for especially for their society, societally one of the most rankest things that can occur. So he says there in verse 11, this is Jesus answering this question to them. And so in verse 11, it says, Jesus continued, there was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all that he had and he set off for a distant country and there squandered his wealth in wild living. I love that English, wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country and it began to be in need. So when he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs, he longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father. And I will say to him, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and he went to his father. We'll stop there. So in this case, there's two sons and a father. Then there's some laborers and they live on a farm. And so the youngest son comes to the father and he says to him, uh, I want my portion of your estate. Now, even though this is old, right, this is not normal. It would be the same like today. If if you had a will written out and you have a couple kids and you're still alive and kicking and you're in full of your faculties and your kid comes up to you and says, I want everything that you were going to give me when I die, when you die. I would like that now. That's a little suspect, right? Yeah. You might question a little bit, like, what's your motivation? You know, why do you want it? What, what's happening here? Why is that important to you? Uh, what do you value? Do you actually value me? Do you value what I can provide for you? A lot of questions will be brought up. So this is a very pompous request. Even it'd be as much of a pompous request today as, as it was back then. They're the same. Does that make sense? So this wasn't like some sort of Israeli tradition, and this guy's kind of taking advantage of it. That's not the deal at all. He's literally just going to his dad and saying, you know what? You're not dead yet. I want what's mine. Please give it to me. Right? Very insulting, because the, the Hebrew culture was very much, and really the Middle Eastern culture in general... Is very much built on an honor-shame, you know, uh, dynamic, and you do not shame your parents. It's it's a uh, a huge, huge disgrace. Not just for you, but it's a shame for like on down the family line that like they all these people weren't raised right because you did this thing. So he he does this shameful thing to his father, and I think what his request is 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 very common to human beings, because think about where he's at. He lives on a good farm. We know later on, as we're, when we read later, we know that, that his father owns, he calls it the fatted calf. There's specifically a cow that's set aside for whatever feast or whatever party they're going to have. He has, they're so rich they can set aside a cow specifically for a party, right? So that's, that's pretty substantial. Uh, you know, when we can just drive down to Sacramento and see like Harris Ranch or whatever, it doesn't seem like a big deal. Big deal. They're so rich they can do that. He has laborers, right? So not only is his... Father, uh, have this farm, but it's big enough that he can hire laborers, and they are able to survive on the wage that he pays them. He's got a brother that also works there. So all that to say is in this story, in this parable that Jesus is telling, there's this boy who has everything. He's not going for want. He's not having a terrible life. It, it, the, and we'll see in the end, it's, it's a good father. This isn't a picture of some sort of bad dad that's you know, taking him out to the woodshed all the time or something like that. The issue here is this. He says, give me what is mine. It's interesting, right? Give me what's mine. Now, by Levitical law, when his father died, he was required to get some of that money. The the eldest son got a double portion and then it went split off from there. So he was, by Levitical law, entitled to a portion of that inheritance. In fact, the way the Levitical law worked, to keep land in the family, right, because they all live on an apportioned, uh, land that was given to them all the way back to in Joshua, right? They, all, they inherit the land, they all get a piece, that, that that boy would have gotten land, and he would have got what's on it. It was his by right. And to the same to any daughter or so forth. It was theirs by right, okay? But he comes, and this is how so many problems in life start, for the person who has not believed in Jesus and for the person that's believed in Jesus. The context here is clearly... Uh, people that have not believed in Jesus, that he goes after the people that have not believed. But it doesn't mean we can't take the concept and apply it to our own lives. And we'll talk from both sides on that. But in this statement, give me what's mine. Give me what is my due. That is probably one of the most problematic attitudes and issues and, and, and causes the most difficulty in our lives. Where we look at something, we have something that's good, we have something that's okay, but there's something else and we we say, I want that. Give me that. Give me what's mine. And in a lot of ways, we've been given a lot by God. Even Even if we're not believers or anything like that, we have bodies, for one. We have minds. We have souls. We're able to enjoy things. We're able to create right we're able to do all these things we can we can do good we can uh, you know use our superpowers for good if you want and we can use them for evil so it's interesting that god has given all of us existence and it's not a, it doesn't have to be necessarily be a terrible one and i'm not commenting to difficulties in life or something like that sin always makes life terrible and we'll talk more about that but the point is that we can insist on what god has given us this is my body it's my soul, it's my brain, and I'll do what I want with it. And the incredible thing is he lets us, doesn't he? And that's what his father does. This son says, give me what's mine. And you know, the father doesn't say, hey, 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 I'm not dead yet. I'm not doing that for you. He gives it to him. He says, here's, here's what's yours. You can have this. This is what your due would be if I were to die. Verse 13, it says, not long after that, the young son got together all that he had and he set off for a distant country where he squandered his wealth in wild living. So this young man, and this is, again, this is what we do. He gathers everything that he has, everything he can muster that belongs to him. And, and, and think about, this is a little bit disrespectful. He leaves the farm and he leaves the country. So think of the irony of that. Here's this boy who has... Essentially, everything in his life has been given to him from this farm, from his father. And his response is to take that and then to leave the area that blessed him. Does that make sense? And he's saying there, this isn't enough for me. This doesn't bless me enough. This doesn't fulfill me enough. This doesn't give me everything that I want or something like that. And he believes something different. He believes that if I go somewhere else, if I get off this farm, if I go to another country, and we don't know where he went, and it's a parable. Jesus didn't say that this is an account of something that really happened. He's, he's sharing a, a parable. He's, he's, it's, a, it's a word lesson, right? So we don't know, did this guy go to Greek culture? Did he go to some other place in Palestine? Where did he go? We don't know. But what we do know is when he left, he spent it. In the, uh, I just like it says wild living, because I don't know. It just it makes me snicker a little bit. It probably shouldn't. But the word there in the Greek, it's esotos. There you go, let's move on. No, I'm just kidding. So esotos, the root word is sozo, where we get our word, like anytime you read the word salvation, to be saved, can be saved, should be saved in the Bible, it's sozo, it's salvation. So this is the same root word, it's esotos. So we have like our word atheist, meaning I do not believe in a, the, in a, in a, in a God, that's an atheist, right? So in esotos, is someone, you're doing things, it literally means like unredeemable stuff, stuff that no good can come from. Does that make sense? That, so when he goes and wild living is just more fun, but it's, it's a sotos. It's the idea that what he's engaged in is unredeemable. Now we know later on the brother describes it and it, basically he spent it on rich foods and ladies. Um, and, and that's where he, he spends all that money. But there again, that's us, right? So we're not picking on this guy. We're just talking about what this guy did. He decided that even though he had this place of security, this place of kindness, he had this incredible father, right? Maybe he him and his brother don't give her, get along very well because he seems to have beef later on when he comes back, but it wasn't, in his mind, enough. So in his mind, enough was basically to go out and have really tasty food and drink and have a lot of sex. That's the point of it. That's what he was all about. And it's funny cuz if you look at our society today, what are we about? Right? Tasty food and sex. That's like half of our advertisements. If you watch football, what are like all the advertisement? Food, drink and sex. I mean, they don't like advertise, you know, literal sex on there, but they might as well. They use sex to sell everything they're trying to. So it's a, it's a very interesting dynamic. And and how many of us in a moment of honesty have believed that leaving behind the things of God, because they're lacking, we feel that they're lacking in our lives, that we can chase something else, and that's where we'll find the true fulfillment that we're looking for. Right? Probably all of us, if I had to take a guess. All of us have. We're all constantly convinced that God just doesn't have enough for us, and that there's something over that hill. It doesn't have to be drink and sex. It can be anything. It could be land and money. It can be companionship. It can be whatever it might be. None of these, you know, none of those things per se are bad in their context. But they, but, but we're just convinced it just can't be where we're at. So that's what, that's what this guy's doing. The cool thing is about this, what is our context here? Our context isn't, hey, this guy's a loser. And Jesus is really just trying to point out there's a lot of losers out there. Now we know that. We are losers. We know there's losers, right? The context here is what? What? This guy is accepted back by his father. Now, we'll get there. But the concept here isn't, look how bad this guy is. The concept is, look how good God is. The fact that he can be disrespected, taken from, that we can take everything that he's given us and we can use it for whatever we want to satisfy ourselves. that We can do all those things, and yet we're welcome back. So it's, it's, it's this parable being given to the Pharisees is that all sinners of any venue, whatever, every person has incredible value to God. You have value to God. Everyone you've ever met has value, value to God. And everyone who's ever been has had value to God. There has never been a human being that has lived on the planet. Not Judas, not Saddam Hussein, not anyone who hasn't had value to God. He loves every single person. So the, 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 the demonstration of who this guy is is not, oh, look how terrible he is. Don't be like this guy. That may be a good application that we don't want to be like him. But the application is, look how good God is. Right? So as we kind of keep going through it, gives, it gives more detail about what this guy's life was at. He had spent everything and there was a severe famine in the whole country that began to be in need. And that's the kicker about different countries, and I don't mean different countries than the United States. We're not talking about earth right now. We're talking about our heavenly country, our, the, the, the kingdom of Jesus. Every other country besides the kingdom of Jesus is famine. It always ends in famine. For if, Choose any sin that you want, that you or I have, have, have chosen to try to be satisfied. Have you been satisfied? Have you ever been to a party where you're like, I got so drunk and I didn't even get hung over, I'll never need to get drunk again because I'll be fulfilled for the rest of my life. Right? No. Have you ever been like, that was such good sex outside of marriage, I never want, I'll never have a sex drive again? It's probably never happened, I don't, don't answer that, but it's probably never happened, right? <laughs> have you ever had enough money where you said, I just never need another dollar? Even though, I bet most of us here in here probably have like two, three pairs of pants. Right? We probably have like two, three pairs of shoes. You guys know me, I have like five shirts. Right? We've never pulled a shirt off the off the thing and been like, this is the last shirt. Well, I have actually, I'll be honest. (laughs) I hate buying stuff, but you know, whatever. I have different sins. I'm just like, does this fit? Yes, close enough. But but the point is, is this this land is nothing but famine to the soul. And no matter how much we get. Once we leave the father behind, once we leave his provision behind, there's nothing but famine. And the crazy thing is, in the beginning, he hits a famine. And what's his decision? What does he do? Because he's just like us. It says that there was a severe famine in that land and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. So this guy is so hungry. He's, he doesn't leave the country. He stays there. You might might say, well, he didn't have enough money to leave. They walked everywhere, (laughs) okay? Uh, Like a a donkey was was a valued object. Most people are literally not getting enough calories every day. The aim of most people's life, for most peasants or plebs, however you would like to label it, their goal in life is to get enough calories that day. So a lot of these teachings that Jesus has, like don't worry about tomorrow, it was very, very much applicable for them because they probably weren't going to eat enough in that very day. So this idea that, oh, he couldn't do this or couldn't do that, unlikely. He just made a decision where he said, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to try to fix this, just like we do. I'm going to try. To, I, I'm in this country. I've kind of I've liked the life that I've lived so far. The, the wild living was kind of my thing, and I'm kind of into it. I'm, I'm in a slump right now, but you know what? I'm going to go to this citizen of this country, and I'm going to see if he can hook me up. So he gets a job. He gets a job feeding pigs. Now, there could be another application there because Jews aren't supposed to touch pigs, right? They can't eat pigs. They're not supposed to tend pigs. They were an unclean animal, and they would have nothing to do with pigs. So this guy is in a, in a different country, in a different value system, in and in, in, in he's devalued by this country as a Jew, and now he's essentially the idea here, he is bottom of the barrel. He's wasted everything he has. We don't like people that waste things, do we? How many news stories do we get every day, whatever news channel you watch, where it's like somebody wasted something somewhere and we're like, oh, they shouldn't do that. My tax money, right? So this guy's a wasteful guy. He's not faithful with what he had. He, he's, he's, he's a loser, okay? And he says, man, give me this job. I'm going to try to solve this myself. It says there, it goes on from there. He says, he longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. So he's in this, he works for this guy, and he's so hungry, he's so downtrodden, he's so empty inside that he's looking at the slop that he's throwing to the pigs, and he said, I wish I could eat this. I wish I could find something. I, I will take anything to fulfill me. It isn't that, again, it's human nature, right? We will spiral and devalue and all these things go on in our life. And we just, if I could just have this, then I'd be satisfied. If It would just be this. It doesn't matter how low we get. It's incredible about how we can, will still think, if I could just eat rotten food that pigs eat, then I would be full. Then I would be satisfied. Our, our value system plummets after we leave the farm. He goes on from there and says this, no one gave him anything. I don't want to be a jerk, but I'm going to be straight up. Everyone in this world that doesn't know Jesus, which that sounds a little pompous, just roll with me, because they're like us, are out for themselves. And we are too. Because without the Spirit in our lives, we're self-serving. right, And when we're in the world and we're doing worldly things, most of the people around us, I'm not saying people never do nice things. I mean, you have the Peace Corps. You have uh, Toys for Tots. I'm, I'm not saying nobody does nice things. Well, but at the end of the day, we're, we're in it for ourselves. And this guy is experiencing that to the hilt. Can you imagine walking by a dude who's throwing pig, pig slop? It, the word pod, this is the only place that comes in the New Testament. It means carob pod. Which I'm like, my mom tried to give me carob when I was a kid too. Like, told me it was chocolate. Like, get out of here. But it's, it's, a, it's a carob pod. So he's, he, can you imagine walking by some guy who's like emaciated, feeding pigs, and, and whatever he says, he's like, hey, you know, I just, boss, could I just, could I have a bite of this? And his answer is, no. No, you cannot have a bite of that trash. You don't, you don't get that. Or walking by and seeing this guy and just being like, I'm not giving you anything. You get nothing from me. So he's in a country where no one will give him anything. That's not where he came from, right? He came from a place where his father gave him everything. So he comes back and it says this in verse 17. He says, when he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. Your Bible, depending on your translation, may say, when he came to himself, when he came to his senses, when he thought about it. Uh, It literally is, uh, and this is just how English translates Greek, it literally is when he came to him. And if you want to get quite literal about it, it's, in Greek, would be when he, him. (laughs) But the idea is when he came to himself. When he, when he thought about it, when he got to this point where he was actually willing to rationalize with himself about what was happening. Does that make sense? Rational, critical thought about what's going down. So something changed in him. Before, before he wasn't with himself, right? Before he was thinking... How do I satisfy myself? He was rejecting truth in his life. He was just making stuff up as he went. If I do this, I'll be better. If I do that, I'll be better. If I can party a lot, I'll be better. Whatever it is, fill in the blank. So he's just acting like a human. And again, what's Jesus' point? His point is not, this is a terrible guy. His point is that God loves and cherishes and labors for everyone to bring him back to himself. That's the whole point of this parable, right? So you can take the person that many of us would be tempted to despise. I can't say your heart, but what do we think when we see someone who's wanton and partying, wasting their life, and is stubborn? Many of us are just like, meh. I don't have time for that. Right? So that's where this guy is at. So he comes to his senses, and he makes this, essentially, an intellectual ascension. And he says, everybody that works for my dad has food. That's his ascension. Everyone that works for my dad gets enough to eat. And here I am, I'm starving to death in this other country. So he makes a plan. He says, I will set out and I will go back to my father and I'll say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and he went to his father. So in his plan and in his response, he, he goes from, Father, give me what's mine, right? Give me mine. So that's a sense of entitlement. It's a sense of, we can get a little bit of glimpse into his his ideology, his identity, that he sees himself as a deserving person. He sees himself as having a right to something he doesn't actually have a right to at that time. He sees himself as a person that knows what what is best for himself. He needs to go to this other country. He needs to spend the money this way. He sees himself as resourceful. He gathers everything that is his and he goes out and he sets out on that. But when he comes to his senses, what does he realize? I'm hungry and I had everything. Everybody that even works for my dad has enough to eat. So he makes a plan, and his plan is that he's going to go tell his father not what he deserves, not what his father should give him, not all the way that he's right about what he did, but he comes back and he says, He's going to say, Father, I sinned against you. Literally, uh, sin means to miss the mark. I didn't do what was right. All of a sudden, there's a humility, an honesty, a brokenness, right? Where he's admitting, he's, I didn't do what is right. This is like an epidemic in our world. The Internet is all about not admitting that you didn't do what's right. Have you you discussed anything recently with anyone that had any weight to it? And how many of us will say anything, especially the political parties, either one, will say anything to not look wrong? Anything. It's so bizarre because we think that somehow with all this protection of self and pride, that we will be preserved, and that's what true life is. But in this guy's revelation, he comes to a place with his father where he's just going to tell him, ha, I wronged you. He doesn't say, you know, I'm back, Dad, and frankly, the way you raised me was kind of weak, and so that's what caused this, you know, I had this turmoil in my heart. and that's, He doesn't say he's going to do that, and maybe, maybe there was some of that. He doesn't say, you know what, my brother, he's a big jerk. I mean, look at him, he's acting about this calf now. He's kind of the problem. He just comes and says, I'm the, I'm the problem. This is really important for our Christian walk. We have to admit to God, if we're going to get anywhere in our life, spiritually, you know what the problem is with me. That's where it is. Now, are there problems all around us? Sure, because everybody else around us has their problems, right? That's what church is. It's a place where everybody with problems comes. <laughs> so it's no wonder that we tick each other off and stuff. But it's just a place where where hopefully we can find healing. So he's honest. And then he says, I'm going to say also that I sinned against heaven, which is an acknowledgement of God. So I didn't do what was absolutely moral right. And he says, and I sinned against heaven. It's one thing to sin against his father. I did what was wrong by you. I acted poorly. But it's another thing, too, where he admits, I have done and I have broken absolute truth as a Jewish person. And then he goes on, and now his, here's his new identity. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. I have wronged you in a way where I understand I am not worthy to be called your son anymore. Worthy means, think of it this way, worthily. I do not possess the intrinsic value in myself to be related to you anymore and to have all the, the, the benefits and the pleasures that that was. That's what he's saying. Before, he was saying, give me mine now, even though I should only get it later. Now he's saying, I don't, I don't deserve any of that. I'm not here for clout. I'm not here to get over on you. I'm not here to do anything. He's just saying, I'm not worthy of that anymore. And I get that. Right? This is an honest statement that he's making. And then he says, make me like one of your hired servants. Can I just work for you? Can I just be on the farm? So he went from this place of demanding valuing his own intellect and decision-making, valuing what he felt like was truth, valuing what he was going to pursue to fulfill him. He came from that position to a place where he says, look, I know I don't belong there anymore, but I know that you're so good that even if I just work for you, even if I don't associate with you as father and son, even if I can just have be in the bunkhouse over there, it's so much better than anything that other country has to offer. And so he's, verse Uh, 20, you love this, I love this. So he got up and he went to his father. And here's the thing, whether we don't know Christ at all and we've never received him as Savior or whether we're Christians and we've known him for years, as human beings, we have this tendency to get stuck. It's very interesting. Uh, I think it's Psalm 43, it might be Psalm 44, where David says, he says, my sins have gone over my head and I don't know what to do. you ever felt that way? Have you felt like my sins have gone over? I'm drowning in my sin. I am unable to get out. Whenever I'm around a computer, I always look at porn when I don't want to. Whenever I'm going to a convenience store, I always pick up some alcohol because I'm trying to cope. Whenever I'm talking to my wife, I always fly off the handle and act like a jerk. Whenever I'm trying to talk to my children, I always get proud and I treat them poorly. Whenever I, whenever I, right? We have things and we just feel stuck. Or we feel stuck in depression. We're just like, I don't know how to look up from where I'm at. All I can see is this stupid country and this stupid pig slop. And I can't even look up to heaven. Or we say to ourselves, I'll never be different. I'll always act this way. I'll always respond this way. This is like the nine millionth time I've done X, Y, or Z. I'll never be different. We get stuck. In our sin. And a lot of times, if you don't know Jesus today, you can come up with a million reasons of why you don't need to cry out to him. But the reality is you know as well as I. And I don't say that in some weird, pompous way, just as a sinner, you both we both know if you don't know Christ, you're condemned and you're tired and you're anxious and you're depressed. And you're trying to cope with it with all these different things, because that's what humans do. All right. We try to find some sort of fulfillment when we're full of sin, full of missing the mark, full of moral wrong. So how do we deal with that? Well, if you don't know Christ today, it's kind of a one-step program. You receive Him. And what does that mean? You invite Him into your heart. You confess, Lord, I'm not worthy to be called your son. I've sinned against you. I've sinned against heaven. I don't do what's right. And because Christ died on the cross for our sin, that's that's what the cross was. It was payment. Not judgment, payment. Christ was judged for our sins. So His Precious blood shed poured out from the praetorium to the cross is the payment for what we owe for our moral wrong. And God says, that's a good enough payment for me. I'll judge my son. I'll condemn my son. He'll be slain. And he'll rise from the dead. So if you don't know Christ today, really the application here for you in verse 20 is is to stand up and pray. or here I am. You, You stand up right now if you want, but I just mean in general, figuratively speaking. Cry out. To God. Ask for his forgiveness. And he says that anyone who seeks me will find me. That anyone who cries out to him is forgiven of sin. No strings attached. If you're a Christian and you feel stuck, what is he? you? Well, there's, it's, it's baby steps, right? We've all probably seen what about Bob like 30 years ago? It's baby steps. He ha- we don't know where he lived, right? He, we just know he's in another country. So if you think of Israel and you, you think, you know, the Mediterranean Sea, and there's Israel kind of along the sea, and at some point it's 12 miles wide, and we, I don't know exactly the, what it was there in, in this case during the Roman, but it's a Roman colony at this point. And so he, did he have to walk 20 miles, 40 miles? Either way, it's a long walk from another country. But all he had to do first was get up. And that's the hardest part. The hardest part is this, the, the confession that we need help, And then getting up. And it's not get up to earn it. It's not get up because we're going to show God we're serious. It's just to get up and walk to him and say, I need you. I'm stuck. I don't know how to deal with my sin. And the Bible gives us ways. We're told to confess our faults to one another and pray for one another. We might find healing. Find a friend. Talk to them. Talk to the Lord. That's what we're called to do. So it says that he got up. And it says there, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. And he ran to his son and threw his arms around him and kissed him. Remember, who's he telling this to? Religious leaders that were very good people on the outside. Remember the confession of the Pharisee when he's praying in the temple. I fast twice a week. I tithe of all of my garden, right? These are good law-abiding people. The problem is that they believed that their standing with God was based on how much they obeyed the Levitical law. So this guy, who is wasteful, riotous, wildly sexually active, wildly drunk, doesn't come up with the right plan in the beginning, basically rips off his father, disrespects his father, despises everything that's ever been provided for him, insists on his way in every, in every form for as long as he can, this guy runs, or at least walks. He goes back to his father, I should say. And what does the father do? Well, I don't know. If I was the father, I might stand on my tractor looking at him, tapping my foot. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. Okay, you're back, huh? Big surprise. Get a little sarcasm in there, a little passive aggression, right? Because that's what... Bad dads do, but he's the good father, and it says that he ran afar off. Now we don't know—is they in a valley and he sees them off? You know, coming down some trail—is it—you know—a hill that they're on? We have no idea. But evidently, it's not near to when he sees them. It's far. He sees them far out there, and the father runs. Isn't that interesting? The father runs to him. And then the son gives the confession. So it says that when the, 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 uh, the, the father runs to him, the father's filled with compassion for him, and then he throws his arm around him and he kisses him. He doesn't say a word to him. It's just, I'm so glad that you're back. He doesn't ask him for an explanation. Where have you been? What have you done? How much do you have left? Did you get anything with interest? You know, he doesn't, Why do you look so terrible? What's with these clothes? That's not what you left in. I mean, a million things that people say when you when you come back with your tail between your legs. And this father just runs out. No conversation, no condemnation, just compassion. That's that's a wild idea I think for us because this guy did all this to himself, didn't he? Does he have anybody to blame but himself for this? And the answer is no. And yet the father looks at someone like that, someone like us. We do it to ourselves. And he has compassion for us. Isn't that encouraging? How many of us honestly look at God like we know, we know the blood of Jesus is pretty powerful. And we're kind of like, ah, I'm glad for the cross. But then we think of it like, oh, I hope dad doesn't beat me again. I'm going to try to be as quiet as possible when I get back to the ranch. So I can maybe just sneak into the bunkhouse and get a job. Instead, the father just runs out. Let's stop putting attitudes on God that he doesn't have for us and for other people. He had compassion on him. I think there's a part of us that, that maybe for, I'll just say me, I don't know about you, you're like, I don't know if I like that. Because isn't that the beef that the brother's about to have? Dad, I've always done what you said. You never gave me a calf to kill and eat with my friends. There's always going to be people that hate grace. That don't think it's valid. You didn't earn enough. You didn't do enough. You didn't pray enough. All these things. Should we walk with God sure? Should we pray sure? But that's not what makes him run to us. It's what it's his compassion. It's his love. It's his care. We've never done anything to make God run to us. He just does it because of who he is. That's why we have security. If it was dependent on us, he wouldn't be doing a lot of running, I don't think. So he's a long way off. He has compassion. He he hugs him. He kisses him. doesn't say a word. It says, verse 21, then the son said to him. So he's like, no, i got to say this. This is the plan. Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. So he tells him that. He confesses that. Verse 22, but the father said to the servants, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet and bring the fatted calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. You get, he doesn't even acknowledge it verbally. He says, I've totally wronged you, Father. I've totally broken moral right. And the father just, oh, okay. Hey. Go get this guy the best robe. This is the heart of God, right? This is that all heaven rejoices when one sinner turns back to him. This is the goal of heaven. The goal of heaven is not punitive. Judgment is something that occurs because there has to be justice. And he's a just God. But judgment is not the emphasis of heaven. Why, as Christians, do we continue to want to put forward judgment as the emphasis of heaven? Will there be judgment? Yes, there will. The books will be opened, and the names will be read, and anyone who has stepped over the body of Jesus to reject his cross will be separated from God forever. But that is not the emphasis of heaven. The emphasis of heaven is that when one sinner repents, all heaven rejoices. It means that everybody in heaven is just like, yes, This is so great. All the angels. Yes, this is what we're about. This is what we're trying to do here. This is what God's kingdom is about. This is so great. In fact, God says in multiple places he takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. Right? Tells us in Timothy that his will is that none should perish. So this picture of God, Father, I've done it all wrong. I screwed everything up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Get this guy the best robe. He didn't say, here's what we need to do. Um, can you get him like a, a new uniform for the servants' quarters, please? Let's make sure it's a clean uniform, but let's get him a new uniform so he can work for me. No, he says, let's get him the best. He, he says, I don't want anyone to look at my son as a second-class citizen, as if he's being penalized, as if I'm disappointed in him. So he needs to have the best robe. It's incredible, right? It's illogical to us. We're like, no, 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 no. He needs to earn his way up. Maybe he can be like a farm bellhop or something, and then maybe he can like kind of work up to like farm head chef, and then maybe cattle hand, and then, then maybe he could be son. But it's not the attitude, is it? The father's attitude is, this guy gets the best because he's my son. It's the only reason. And he says, get him a ring. Now, that could indicate be an indicator of wealth, or it could be an indication of a, a signet ring. You know, like you would seal a letter, like we've all seen, like with uh, Bilbo and or Frodo, keep it secret, keep it safe, and he, you know, puts the, puts the, uh, the, the signet ring, you know, in, in the uh, wax on there. So it's probably uh, an allusion to, or not an allusion, but a, a, a pointing to that a signet ring. Like you have familiar familiar authority again. Or it could just be the idea that hey, again, you get the best robe, and we want to make sure that everybody knows you're my son, that that, that you're worth this. And then he says, give him, some, give him sandals. Now, either he didn't have sandals or he needed nicer sandals or whatever it was. But he says, make sure this guy can walk around on the farm again. Make sure he's not going to, you know, step on rocks or cow pies or something. Give this guy some sandals. Although, probably don't want to step on a cow pie and a sandal either. But he goes on from there and he says, bring the fatted calf and kill it. So this is, the idea here is this is a, a, a calf or a cow that is being saved for a party. Probably for one of the seven Levitical feasts. If I just—that's just guessing. We don't know. But he says instead of saving it for Passover, instead of saving it as a lamb, but they also had feasts uh, throughout the week there, and then they had Pentecost. Instead of saving that for the Feast of Booths, instead of saving that, he says, no, no, no. You bring that thing right now, and let's throw a party and let's celebrate together. And he says because my son was dead. Now was he dead? Was the son dead? No. He was just gone. Right. But the idea is he was dead to him. We didn't have relationship. We didn't have friendship. We didn't work together. We didn't laugh together. We didn't eat together anymore. He was dead to me. So he's not saying that the son was physically dead. He's saying it was, it was as if he were dead because we had no communication. And he says, but he's alive now. He was lost and he's found. So they began to celebrate. Now we're not going to read about the brother. You can read about the brother. Basically, the brother sees the celebration, is not thrilled with it, and then goes to his dad and says, says what every legalist says. Says what everybody who thinks that they're righteous because of what they do says. Father, I've done everything you've ever asked me, and you never gave me what you gave him. Legalism, law, pride, personal value out of what we do for God will always hate the person that just is loved by God. We'll never accept it because we can't accept it. Whenever we find our identity in who we are as far as what we do for God and how great we are in his kingdom, if that's how we see ourselves, how we relate to others from that position, we will always hate the people that are just like, dude, I suck, but God is good. He's crazy good. We'll look at that and go, you're lazy. You don't do what I do. You don't work as hard as I work. You don't pray like I pray. You don't read the Bible like I read the Bible. You don't have all the extra books like I have the extra books. You don't fast like I fast. You don't talk to people about Jesus like I talk to Jesus. I talk to people about Jesus. You don't do what I do, therefore you don't deserve. It's a very common Christian attitude, and it's rancid, and it's antichrist. christ Christ died to save sinners, right? As Paul would say, of whom I am chief. So it's, we don't want to be the brother. We don't want to hate grace. Do we want people to walk with God and, and spread on? Sure, of course we do. But you know what? When somebody's forgiven, our response should never be like, Pfft. okay, we'll see, All right? We just want to rejoice. If we flip back to uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, where we left off last week, we kind of talked about it a little bit, but we're going to make an application out of here from Luke 15. So in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, remember, he's talking about three times. He says that the law is transitory. Literally, it's passing away is what the, the word means, obsolete. And so he's making a, a comparison between the Old and the New Covenant. So he, Paul calls the Old Covenant uh, passing away or obsolete, and he calls the New Covenant a covenant of greater glory, right? Then he goes on to talk about um, because of Israel, the Israelis in that time and their dullness, they, they didn't receive Jesus, And then he talks about how because there's a veil over their eyes because they've hardened their hearts to God. So then in verse 15, he says, Even to this day when Moses is read, a veil covers their hearts. But verse 16, But whenever anyone, so not just Jews, anyone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory, are being transformed into his image with one everlasting glory uh, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. So he's making this point. He says, we, because we've turned, if you have, you've, if you turned to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now, specifically in this case, the veil is that the Old Covenant is uh, still in, in use. So when, once the veil is taken away, you see that Christ fulfilled the Old Covenant, and the Old Covenant is now obsolete, he says that when we look at Jesus, because he says, there's, oh, I should, let me read it again, but whenever anyone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Now again, the word Spirit there is pneuma, or breath, or wind, right? Pretty much every time you see the word Spirit in the New Testament, it's pneuma. Or we get our word pneumatic, like a pneumatic tool, an air-driven tool. So it's the idea that the Lord is the Spirit, He is His, his Breath, his movement—it's obviously a metaphor, uh, because I don't think you know many of us feel like in our heads or something. But he says that he's the spirit; he is this movement in our life that's blowing us a certain direction. But that direction is freedom. The direction is is freedom from sin, which freedom from the old covenant. It's not about law anymore, for the sake of righteousness. That when the when the Lord's spirit is in our lives, the Holy Spirit is in our lives. That he's moving us towards freedom. But he goes on to say from there, he says, uh, uh, verse 18, he says, we all with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory. So in this freedom, part of what we're doing when we're walking with Jesus is we're contemplating the Lord's glory. Now, remember from last week, the word glory, it's doxa. It's where we get our word doxology, but it's the idea of good opinion. It It literally just means good opinion. And so what he's saying is we contemplate good opinion about God. In other words, we contemplate who he is. Does that make sense? So in in our parable in verse 15, that man found victory because he stood up and went to his father, right? And we talk about just taking that first step, standing up, confession, finding help, moving forward, being honest. That's the real thing here, being honest. So now as Christians, as God's moving in our heart through his spirit, we are called to and we ought to be contemplating the lord thinking about him now this is difficult i think and i don't mean that in like a weird sarcastic way it's difficult for me because we live in a, i don't know about you but we but we live in an age and in our house we have uh me and my wife and two kids two cats and a dog but you know we have for for so like and and i don't know if this is good or bad you can let me know but you know i have a phone my wife has a phone my oldest daughter has a phone they have a tablet that they share if they wanna use it, which they don't use it very often. And we have a TV and, um, and we have an Xbox. And I have a computer. My wife has a computer that she uses for her work. And it's crazy, because you get up in the morning and there's like a million things that you can look at. Have you ever notice that? There's a million things. You can look at the news, because that's super encouraging. You can, you know, you can look at, um, you know, and, and we can become slaves to, like, who liked our posts, right? We can become slaves to what are other people saying, what are other people's lives look like. And it's just amazing how And uh, now they have their, you know, somebody out there is a genius because now you have reels, I guess it's called, right, where it's like, I don't know, like 30-second or one-minute videos or whatever. You ever just, like, piddled away, like, an hour? And you, like, you look up and you're like, oh, swoopsie. <laughs> you know, like. What have I been looking at? I, I saw a, 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 a wait, when, the, when the Internet was text, which many of you probably won't, may not remember that. But I saw this thing one time that said, the Internet is like ancient Egypt. Everybody worships cats and just writes on the wall. I thought, That's pretty <laughs> clever. But, but, you know, the point being is that it, it can be hard to contemplate the Lord because there's a lot of valid things that we have to contemplate in our life, right? Our jobs, our families, our school, you know, all these things that we have to give attention to. We can't not do that. But then there's a lot of things that, that we don't have to give attention to that, that draw our attention. And so as Christians, we need to take a moment and in and, and honesty and say, am I doing that? Am I contemplating the Lord? One of the biggest fallacies that we experience as Christians is we think that somehow we'll be able to be bombarded by everything in this world that tells us everything we believe is wrong. And that we'll somehow survive without ever contemplating who God is. That we'll somehow be okay. Because we as human beings are masters of survival. They say it's the cockroach, but it's the human. Right? Because it is incredible how miserable we will be. But we will just keep going. Whether it's Netflix or alcohol or weed or whatever we're using to cope with. Or ice cream. Whatever it might be. We will just keep going in misery, and we will not take a moment to stand up and go back to our Father. I just want to encourage you, not for merit's sake, not because you become a good person, but to contemplate God, to understand who He is, to critically think about who He is from His Scriptures. If that's confusing, you go, I don't know how to do that. We would love to help you with that. You could talk to myself or Luke or one of the leadership guys here. We would love to. If you're a lady, we'll hook you up with one of the ladies here that, that, that does that. Don't walk out of here without some sort of resource to contemplate the Lord in an intelligent and an active way. That's how our minds change. That's how the Spirit works. So he says, as we contemplate the Lord's glory... We are being transformed, metamorphosized, literally, that we're being turned into something completely different. So to give you an example, this is the example I always use. We'll be brief. When my daughter, one daughter was like eight, I think, and the other daughter was three, and we sent off for that thing that you get that you like, uh, a caterpillar turns into a butterfly. You seen those? It's a ripoff. It's always a moth. We did it a few times. But anyway... (laughs) Because the way they, like, the picture's like this, like, monarch the size of your hand, and you're like, yes, and you get it, and you're like, you're just a brown moth. <laughs> but anyway, so I read the little tag on one once, and, and I don't know if you know this, but when the little cocoon gets made, the little worm thing, you know, the caterpillar that's in there, it turns into liquid. It just becomes literally a goo, and then the goo reforms into a butterfly. It's literally what the word means, a metamorphosis. It was this. It's not just a worm that sprouts wings. It was this, and now it's something completely different. And so what happens is, as we look to Jesus, as we contemplate, we think through critical thinking, not just buying into stuff, but thinking through stuff. The Bible promises That by the Holy Spirit, we will be changed to be like Jesus, to have his kindness, not to be divine, nobody's saying that, but to have his character, to have his love, to have his kindness. Which is better, to never be wronged or to be able to have joy and love the people that wronged you? One is who you are, and one is just coasting. Does that make sense? Which is better, to, to, not be, to, to never be wronged to not be angry? Which is better, to, to have a lack of an object to lust after? Right? Which is kind of, sometimes we try to treat sin. I'm just going to take this away so I don't lust after it. Well, that's good. But wouldn't it be better to not lust after it? Which is better, to, to, to remove things from my life that make me anxious? Which, that could be a positive step. Or just to not be anxious. And so what's being said here is that God is metamorphosizing our souls and our minds to be like him. But it comes from, not as an earning, but more as an osmosis, it comes from contemplating him. So I just encourage you. I don't know what your life is like, and I'm not judging it. Consider the Lord. Consider his glory. Take time, morning, noon. I don't, I don't, there's nothing magic about the morning. The morning is just when the day starts. I don't know about you, but that's when I'm my most productive. It's when I'm the least distracted. If it's different for you, then, hey, there's no law here about that. But consider his glory. And he says, we'll be we conformed to that same image. And, we, and some of your Bibles probably say from glory to glory. And the idea is that we start with that image of his glory and it increases in us. It gets bigger and bigger. We change more and more and more. And it says, this is from the Lord, which is the Spirit. In other words, this this is not just us changing us. This is giving ample opportunity to the Father to change us. Does that make sense? God is good, and he has great things for you. And there has never been a person that has lived. There's never been a person that wasted too much, that sinned too much, that ran too far. That person does not exist. Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And anyone who seeks him early will find him. So where I encourage you, wherever you're at, be honest with him. I've sinned against you and I've sinned against heaven. I just want to be near you. And then let him put the new robe on and the ring and the sandals. And you will not be disappointed. We have a communion today. Um, So it's just an opportunity to remember the Lord we have, uh, I don't want to say just, I mean, it's, it's our opportunity to remember the Lord. He says to remember his body that was given for us. And then he says to remember the new covenant in his, in his blood. The old covenant was in the blood of bulls and goats. The new covenant came through the blood of Jesus, forgiveness. Um, and there's an opportunity. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11, when he des- describes it, he says that we ought to examine ourselves and then so let us eat. And the idea there is that it's that time of honesty and that time of, of inviting God back into our lives, acknowledging that we need him, and then to partake, he says, we, 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 uh, we show forth his death until he comes. So it's an opportunity to remember what God has done for us, and it's a testimony that he's not done, that, he's, that Jesus is coming back, and he's gonna come for his church, and there'll be a new thing that, that, that happens, and that's like, you know, the book of Revelation. So we won't cover that all today. But I encourage you, uh, before you partake, just to have a prayer. And uh, be honest with the Lord. All right, let's pray. Father, thank you for your word and the promises that you've given to us. Thank you for your character. Thank you for these parables that Jesus gave us to tell us exactly who you are. And Lord, you're so good and you're so kind. And Lord, you've always been that way to us. You've never let us down. We appreciate that. Lord, we pray that you would help us to lift our eyes uh, to consider you and to uh, look away from all the distractions in this life and um, to trust you more and more. We praise you and we thank you in Jesus' name.